Um, I, ha I have a, a, a good icebreaker uh, for myself this morning. I, I apologize uh, for my ineptitude on the slides earlier. Uh, if you notice that, perhaps now it doesn't make sense to you, and I should have just left it alone, but <laughs> there was two slides for the psalm this morning, and I kind of abruptly didn't read the second one and just quit. Maybe you're wondering, like, is he not into the second slide? Is he? It, it was, I, when I was looking, I, I, it, I don't know, it happened like in a twinkling of an eye. The slide changed. I, I didn't even perceive it change. I thought, oh, they got it wrong. There's two slides. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I need to just go sit down. That, it, it, it wasn't that I wasn't into the second slide, Oh, I just, I didn't perceive that it had even changed. I was like, are we going to change it? No, we're not. I'm getting down. And then Adrian came out and said, why didn't you read the second slide? I said, there wasn't one. Yes, it changed. Anyway, um, I apologize for that backwardness. Um, and as, as we move then to the text this morning, as has been read for you, we're covering a lot of ground, um, and, and, a, and a lot of ground that can be a bit gnarly at times trying to figure out, like, what is exactly being applied to the moment with the disciples here, and what is for us in relationship to a future date of some of these events. And as you read, and you read others, and you go through church history, and you look at some of the ways that the passages have been interpreted, you're going to find some conflicting comments. So it's not like I can settle the entire thing right here of which piece applies to which part of redemptive history and how so can you prove it 100%. There, there is some, some, some challenge here, but, but I do think that there is a simple reading of the text, which says me, uh, it's mine, right? Uh, so I don't mean to be unfair, but I do think there is a way to open it, read it, and be like, oh, that kind of makes sense. If I don't, for other reasons, import a lot of things into this passage and then somewhat confuse myself and it all together. So I do think there is a way straightforward to read it, and hopefully I can point out those markers and then see how the data just kind of sits within these parameters that are helpful. There is a challenge to me right up front a little bit, and that is um, I might be swimming upstream a little bit, or a lot, depending on where you're coming from, at the very beginning in the interaction of Jesus with the widow. I, I, we start there because I, I'm going to argue that it's, it's the comments about the widow that then gives way to verse 5 all the way through the remaining portion of chapter 21. This is one of those, uh, the, those helpful pieces, in my estimation, of what we call expository preaching, right? So we've been working our way passage by passage, strike by strike through Luke's gospel for a portion of time now. So what's helpful about that, hopefully you see at times, is just because there's a chapter number or a chapter break there or a paragraph break there, recognizing that wasn't necessarily, in fact, it wasn't in the original document. Right? Those are aids through editing that come to help. They give chapter titles, references, uh, verse numbers. Those are additional aids, but not a part of the original text, right? So you recognize through expository preaching going passage by passage by passage, you're seeing, wait, uh, uh, the end of 20 works with the beginning of 21. There's a thought that connects them. Even if I see a number two and one, doesn't mean like stop, 20 has ended, we're beginning 21 now, stop all of the thoughts from 20 because we're beginning a new chapter. 
like we would in maybe a regular book that we're reading. Like, okay, I finished that chapter. I kind of brought the scene to a conclusion. Now I'm starting in the next chapter. It's a brand new character introduction, and we're beginning kind of a new trail here, and maybe we'll meet up with some stuff later. No, at this point, the challenge for us to understand the widow is to understand the widow in concert to chapter 20. And then from the widow, what flows from that example of the widow? Wouldn't it strike you, and I don't know if you read this prior to coming this morning at all or interacted with this, but that we end with this total strip down of the scribes. And then he speaks about sacrificial giving. And then he jumps into judgment. Thinking of that um, kind of conceptually, isn't that kind of strikingly odd? That, that, that we're, we're just taking an aside here. Things are going, we're moving to the cross, we're in Holy Week, somewhere probably on Thursday, and he just takes an aside from everything we've been doing, steps out, sees a widow, makes a comment about sacrificial giving and how you should manage your money, then he comes back over here and starts talking about judgment back at the temple. There's something to be asked there. Why the aside on sacrificial giving? Or, as I hope to persuade just for a few moments, it's not about sacrificial giving. Again, if you look at it, and I know the burden is upon me, because there's the lion's share says it is about sacrificial giving. But again, my argument being, what about expository preaching? we know that this has some comment, most likely where we begin hermeneutically, with what he has already said leading up to it. Not to say it can't be a break, but we shouldn't assume there is a break. Particularly if you look at verse 1. Notice how the text begins. Jesus looked up and saw. Now, again, He's here in chapter 20 already talking about widows in chapter 20. So we're not taking a radical break. We're not making a massive aside to talk about Christian wealth or to talk about how to manage our pocketbooks or to talk about how we ought to be charitable. Now, no doubt that you could, you could say God desires charitable giving. I think we all would recognize that from a number of different angles and a number of different passages. So there's no way where we're looking at this and like, okay, sacrificial giving is out. We undid the widow's story. No, 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 no definitely not. Sacrificial giving is still in play. So, but, but, the, but the question is, is this what this particular text is telling us is about sacrificial giving? It would be my argument, no. And there's a keen reason, not only that is it not a good example of sacrificial giving, but it's a damning example. So it's not a good one, and it's not a neutral one. It's a really, 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 really bad one. It's a really bad example, or maybe a very good example of a very bad thing, of how the religious system was preying upon the poor. Let me start by the passage and then maybe add a small little example. Look at how we're getting there and entertain me as we we go through the passage here. Verse 45 of chapter 20. Remember what's been going on for a couple of weeks now. 
the conclusion of verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of these people. Which people? The scribes. Those ones all the way up there where they were like, you know, hey, teacher, you did a really good job on these Sadducees. No, 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 no. They're not my friends, and they're not yours either. Beware of them. Mark them. Avoid them. Why? Because they're false teachers. What is the character of or the quality of their false religious pretenses? What is the character? What happens to people who don't Avoid them. And who do get caught up in them and their persuasions? What happens? Continue with the passage. They walk around in long robes. Look at these guys. So he's pointing out, look at them. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. Beware of these people. Verse 47. Isn't that striking? They devour widows. Out of all the things that they do, all the bad habits, all the bad teaching, all the twists and turns, he highlights right here, they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, for a show, they make long-winded prayers. Isn't it interesting the strike at the widow's household. They live one way, and they do so by victimizing a very vulnerable group. Beware of these people. For they will receive a greater condemnation. So, so in your mind, you're, you're thinking, that makes sense now. Because, verse 1 of chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Remember, he looked up and saw. He's talking right now. Beware of these people. This is what they do. This is how they behave. These are the people they victimize. He looked up and saw an example of that. He looked up and saw all the rich putting their money in, and he saw what I just said they do. I see a widow. Case in point. Keep going with verse 1. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. How so? What is the calculation? Again, is it a commendation? And that's what she's done. She sacrificially gave. But the word is, on the rich, they're not sacrificially giving. So the idea is, you ought to be a sacrificial giver. Well, think about it in balance or on balance with verse 4. Again, they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty, put in how much? All that she has. They devour widows' houses. 
the challenge for us to say, this is not an indictment on the religious system that victimizes the poor and is taking advantage of this poor widow, but that it's a commendation toward godly giving and sacrificial giving would to be balanced the comment of commendation that our Lord would set a paradigm of generosity as that which gives away all that they have to live on. It's an indictment. It's not largely unlike the medieval era of Catholicism. That which we just celebrated a couple of months ago, what stirred the Reformational movement. Sure, there were many bad teachings in the Roman Catholic Church by the time we hit the medieval era. But you remember what rose to the top to really be that which stuck with Martin Luther as he looked around the selling of indulgences. We saw the same thing in the temple complex where he condemned Israel. Our Lord condemns Israel. After he throws over the table and snaps the whip, the whole nine yards situation of the temple because they're selling access to God. Whatever is on the mind of this poor widow, of what she's hearing from scribes who devour widows' houses, she's hearing something that's causing her to give all that she has to this religious order. Her life is being what our Lord said in the end of chapter 20, devoured. Just give all that you have to live on. Well, then where does that leave her presumably to go? To go die. That can't be the paradigm for giving. That is what then sets off the oracle of judgment, beginning in verse 5. The widow of virtue at the end of 20 and the beginning of 21. It then gives way to our Lord. It's kind of like if you were to see somebody, how would you feel? If, if I could so persuade you, um, how would you feel someone at home, right? This would be the modern version, maybe, and maybe not a one-for-one one exactly, but the modern version of someone sitting at home and watching someone on the television. And they're being told, if you mail in, if you, if you, if you pay in, if you do this, and this person's on an extremely fixed income, extremely. Now, in this situation, there is no fixed income. The issue is she's living hand-to-mouth and so on and so forth. But, but you have the same person who has no business mailing in this guy who lives in Hollywood Hills, her last $40 for the month to pay her heating bill. And yet, sitting under the influence of this individual, this person without capabilities to filter out, this is nonsensical, starts writing or sowing their seed of hope that the Lord is going to bless. What would your response be as you watch the TV is on and the lady sitting in the chair is listening and she pulls out her checkbook and you help her out? What would your impulse be? To praise the giving or to see the corruption? She's being victimized by sowing her seed of hope that God will then bless 10,000-fold. Put away your checkbook. Don't mail it to him. It's the same scenario I would argue for in the giving of the widow. 
She gave her last bit to live on. Meanwhile, the scribes keep rolling. The Pharisees keep rolling. The chief priests keep rolling. But not the poor widow. Thus we move to what is called the Olivet Discourse. And again, it's prompted by the I've had it up to here picture with the widow. Now, the reason perhaps you're familiar and maybe you're not beginning in verse 5, when he starts speaking about what is, like I said, some of the, the gnarly in and out of what is immediate, what is later, what is there in here for us, how are we to understand our place and time. Again, uh, maybe you're, you're familiar with this and perhaps you're not, but it is called the Olivet Discourse. He, he's giving this oracle, or some have referred to it as the little apocalypse in the New Testament. It's this vision of what's about to take place. Um, the reason why it's called Olivet Discourse, as you know, is they're hanging out in the, um, at the Mount of Olives. If, if you look over in just verse um, 30, uh, let's see, verse 37 uh, of the same chapter, 21, it, it, again, it gives you that picture of why would it be called Olivet Discourse or the Mount of Olives. It, we're still seeing the same thing that Matthew reported earlier in the triumphal entry. Our Lord, verse 37, every day he was teaching in the temple. So again, you have, you have a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and a Thursday of teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. So they're in and out of Jerusalem city center where he's winding down or ramping up really this holy week, moving towards crucifixion. He sees this episode, he strips the scribes, says this is what they do. He looks up and behold, there's a perfect example. And instead of commending it and saying, this is what everybody needs to do, follow this paradigm, he turns and says, this kind of stuff is what's bringing this kind of judgment. I've had it up to here. And it was the same parallel episode when he saw them at the temple. Now, the discourse has two massive events in it. Those two massive events between verses um, 5 and 28 is, number one, the destruction of the temple. That's the first massive event in these passages, um, is the destruction of the temple, and number two, the return of our Lord. These are the two massive events of judgment that Jesus is now pronouncing or describing based upon having enough of this false religion, its pretense, and its victimizing of the vulnerable. Now, notice how the discussion about the temple then comes up. So I'm just going to read for our sake, begin in verse 1, and then jump right into verse 5 and read through verse 9 so that you can see it all working in tandem. Verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they can live in this corrupt system. Verse 4, they all contribute out of their abundance. They can get with the program, and the program can get with them. They can shoulder the load. They're doing fine. But this poor widow, out of the same thought, She gave out of her poverty. And not just a little, but she put in every bit she had to live on. 
And while some were speaking of the temple, the temple complex, notice what they're saying about it. The, 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 those who are with the Lord stand in awe of what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at um, the uh, place at St. Peter's. Same idea. Just this, this awesome structure. How it was adorned with noble stones and, and the offerings, the boxes of offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He saw a widow. Verse 7, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So if we look at this text as it gets started in the destruction of the temples, you see clearly the disciples and those who are with him are moved by the beauty and the power of the temple. It would be in that, that kind of the, 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 maybe parallel to you walking into, um, I don't know if many of you had a chance, but the cathedral down the street in East Liberty. I don't know if you've taken a tour of that. You know you have access to walk in there publicly and sign the sheet and just kind of walk into the uh, the. Is it St. Paul's down there, right in the heart of East Liberty? Nobody can miss it. It's enormous. East Liberty Presbyterian, a massive church down there, beautiful. I certainly would encourage you to check it out when you're down there. Um, take, just walk through. You, you, there's this sense of just beauty, and you're moved by it, and the thought of the gospel were it to be preached in it, and the beauty and the ornate detail of everything. It just commends so much. And it's, it's awe-inspiring, the craftsmanship um, of a time and place and its preservation. It's just so much there. And you can think of other examples, just the one down the street, though. And this is the same sense of movement and awe the disciples are having at the buzz and the energy at the temple place. They're looking at it, and they're saying, this is simply amazing. So then a thought that such a building and its structure surrounding the entire complex of people, commerce, the thought that it could be utterly destroyed, and the way that our Lord describes the destruction, and this is the second time you recall he said it in chapter 19, for them only three days ago. And he says, as for these things you see, this amazing cathedral of stone, marble, the beauty, the size, the energy for everything you see here and stand in awe of. The days will come when there will not be left here one stone. You know, the, the thought of, of, is that an exaggeration? You must think at the moment you're hearing it. Or not one stone, this, this, not one stone left. It's almost inconceivable at the moment, if it wasn't thoroughly inconceivable. That all of this could be torn down, literally, not one stone of it, to be left untouched or unharmed, burned to the ground. That is a huge, huge comment. 
it had to shock everyone there. And not only that, but again, they've heard him say this three days ago. Right? So you see that right there. You just briefly recall chapter 19. For he says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Tear down to the ground. You, your children within you, they will leave not one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Three days. Words of total destruction right in a row. It's inconceivable, but he is insistent that this is going to occur. What's a very natural response then? Like, it's not a one-off. It's not like he, uttered, he, he mumbled it under his breath somewhere. He just stripped the place bare three days ago, and now here we are commenting on its beauty and its grandeur and its size and its energy, and all he has to say to us is, look, all this is going to be devoured and destroyed. Wow, he's really insistent on this. This is really going to go down. Receive what he's saying. Then a very natural question next would be, "Uh uh-oh, how do we then prepare for it? Think about it. It's a total collapse of an economy. We hear that all the time, and the ripple effect of an economy collapse, and how that affected us in 2008, and all of its ripple effects all the way across our country. The same idea of so much of the treasury, so much of the finances, so much of the trickle-off economies, smaller groups who sell this and sell that, lodging, all the things that take, pa- or take place at Passover, this huge boom of what they say, roughly just over a million people descending upon Jerusalem. Don't worry, all this is gone, burned to the ground. The natural question is then, if we're going to see the collapse of a people, the collapse of a place, the collapse of a history, the collapse of inheritance, and the collapse of an economy, naturally the question has to be, how do we prepare for this? This is a massive event. And that's what they ask. Notice next, as they hear the Lord, verse 7, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? You're insistent. You're absolute. When will it happen so that we can be ready? We're going to see total decimation. And, 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 and you know, like, what, what will the sign, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So that we can see the, 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 the rumblings, we can see the signs, we can see the movements, and we can adjust. We can make our own provisions. We can be out of the way. We can avoid its collapse. So what's following then after this sense of how do we prepare for this? How do we get ready for a total collapse of a people's? How do we adjust? How do we get ready? How can we see the signs? Our Lord then gives a response. And and this is where we need to kind of read carefully. He gives a response. If you'll notice in verse 8 and 9, we'll look at in just a second. He gives a response that is immediate and yet also a response that stretches a long ways. So in other words, it makes sense in the moment. He's not now, I'm going I'm to push, the, he's not now looking way over the heads of the immediate audience. He's talking about something way down the road, like, you know, a couple thousand years down the road. 
What I'm suggesting is he's making a comment that immediately translates to the question at hand. How do we get ready for this? And he's going to say, this is how you get ready for this. And then for anyone caught in the period, see instructions here listed, again, for you too. This is how you live in this age. Notice the answer that he provides. Again, um, verse 8 and verse 9. I'll jump to seven, the question at hand. When they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Verse eight is the immediate answer. And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So clearly he's speaking of a certain time. Verse 9, and when you hear of wars and tumults, that is, terrible rumblings all around the land, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now, notice here, just briefly, that we are still in this, a, a way to characterize this is to understand, once again, we're in two ages of biblical history. When you think of world history, the, the, the Bible's presentation of the world history is that there are two ages at work. There is simply this age, right, of which we are in, and then there is the age that is to come. We have two ages at work in biblical history. We've already seen that, haven't we, that he spoke of this and already introduced it to the discussion where he said there are two ages to human history, or to all of redemptive history. There are two ages. Look in verse 20, or I'm sorry, chapter 20 at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry. Right? Remember the question about the resurrection. And they say, oh, this is silly. The whole concept of resurrection is silly. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand how history works. There are two ages, and the ages in their experiences are not the same. There are two of them. In this age of which we are current, you marry. But then notice he introduces there is yet another age. You, you marry, and you are given a marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given to marriage, for they cannot die anymore. You see, there are two ages. There is an age here where death is a reality. That is a part of this age, where marriage and procreation is a reality of this age because death is a part of this age, so on and so forth. So generations keep going in this age. But there is an age, one other one, because there's only two, where death does not occur anymore. Now, one more word of hopefully clarifying and not confusing. We are in this age in a subset. So, so kind of stay with me here. If, if we're looking at this age, right, age one, age two, age that is to come, out of this age, we're in kind of the Bible presents it in this portion of this age. Right? This age... We're not in the age that is to come. We're in this age, but we're not with Adam and Eve in the garden. We're at this portion. This portion, remaining in the age, could last quite some time, but this portion the New Testament characterizes as the last days. 
again and again, the New Testament, after the resurrection and ascension, speak to the church in the terms of earnestness about your Christian life, about your Christian witness, about taking the gospel and spreading it. Why the sense of urgency? Why the sense of the importance of marital fidelity, the importance of being sober, the importance of providing, the importance of leading, the importance of preaching, the importance of the sacraments? Why this sense of importance and urgency? Why the role of preaching and nourishing the church along? Because we are urgently here in the last days. That's where we find ourselves. With an age that is passing away, waiting upon an age to emerge, but we're in the last days of it. Turn to Romans 13 just briefly, just briefly. I only have a second. Romans 13, just briefly, to see how this, cha- how this shapes the New Testament and its appeal to each of us based upon the dynamics. And then we'll kind of work our way through the text of Luke and kind of make some observations. But look at the appeal based upon where you sit in time. Verse 13. Read carefully with me, please. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How is that summarizing? Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, get the force of what he's saying, because it's tied to Luke. This age is passing away, and we're in the last days. It's urgent. Live like a believer. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time, right? The sense of urgency about your Christian life, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not even in sensuality. Don't quarrel. Don't live jealously. What's the urgency? Verse 11, you know the time. Salvation is nearer now than it was before with every passing day. Verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Back to Luke 21. This is the urgency of delivery for Paul in the ethics of the New Testament because we are in the last days. Now, Where did that last days begin? How do we know that we moved somewhere on the timeline to a very distinct time known as these last days? When did the last days begin? And we'd have to go to Revelation and do a lot of work, and I know I don't have the time. But if you recall, the last days, if we look at the New Testament, the last days really began with what we sang about this morning and what we're celebrating about tonight. Emmanuel. And his coming for us. The birth of a savior. The incarnation. Began the beginning of the end. He has come down for us. We have a savior. We celebrate that as a people. 
because it's the beginning of the end of time, the beginning of the end of days. We ushered into what the Bible says is the last days. Do you remember when we were doing Hebrews sometime back, he opens up, the apostle of the Hebrews opens up his entire sermon. Which be thankful, I'm not as long as him, at least. His are better than mine, but still. He opens up chapter 1 by saying, long ago, God talked to us through the prophets, through the forefathers. In these last days, he has talked to us and spoken to us by his son. We are in the last days. He then goes on, because this is an urgent matter in your Christian life, he says, let us draw near to one another. Let us not cast off gathering together. Why? Why is the principle, what is the foundation for saying such a word like, hey, everybody be together and go to worship together. Don't cast it off. Why? What is the bottom line for him, Hebrews 10? Because the day is drawing near. Have a sense of urgency about the return of our Lord. Now, I want to walk through the text just briefly. I only have a couple of moments left, and um, I'm not doing so well on time. But if we jump in verse 8, there's a critical piece to notice about verse 8. Is Number one, you see the fact Jesus seems to not be on the ground in verse 8. right? So that gives us some indication about what he's about to describe, when it's going to begin. Verse 8, remember, he's saying, See that you are not led astray. What do you mean? 